National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 26th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. And now your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. And we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about American national security. We're actually in the field today, broadcasting live from the Cybersecurity Summit at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. Our thanks to the team at the Cybersecurity Summit for hosting our broadcast this morning. Uh, Just a quick reminder, I've been mentioning in the previous shows that we have a faculty panel coming up. Uh, The topic is Autocracy versus Democracy. Threats to Democracy in Myanmar, Ukraine, and the United States. That's the Political Science Department at uh, Carleton College, for those of you living in Northfield or in and around Northfield. That uh, panel will take place on Thursday, November 3rd. That's a date change from Thursday, October 27th, uh, tomorrow. They've delayed it a week to Thursday, November 3rd, from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. at Hassenstab Hall. So hopefully you can join because it'll be a fantastic discussion. So for our show today, we're continuing our study of the U.S. intelligence community, but with a special emphasis on the importance of cyber for both collection and security. Our guest this morning is a true expert in the field of intelligence, and you're going to be mesmerized by what she has to say. (laughs) For 35 years, Beth Sanner served in a wide range of leadership, staff, policy, and analytic positions in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Council, and the U.S. Department of State. She retired from her government career in 2021, having served as the Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Mission Integration, during which time she oversaw collection, analysis, and program oversight throughout the entire U.S. intelligence community. Previous to that, Ms. Sander was the Director of the President's Daily Brief, Vice Chair of the National Intelligence Council, and a Senior Leader in CIA's Directorate of Analysis. She remains a leading voice on foreign affairs as a senior fellow at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, a professor in practice at University of Maryland's Applied Research Lab for Intelligence and Security, and she serves regularly as a CNN national security analyst. Beth Sander, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks, and thanks for that introduction. That's wonderful, and I'm really happy to be here at the Cybersecurity Conference. So you're originally from North Dakota, I just found out this morning? I am, so it's like coming home. And you brought a cold with you, I guess. I did. I I hope your listeners forgive me. I don't actually sound like this. (laughs) So you're here for the Cybersecurity Summit, is that right? I am. And uh, I was lucky enough to be invited um, by the person who puts this together every year for the last 12 years. And I gave a keynote um, yesterday uh, about how geopolitical threats converge in the cyberspace. But it has just been wonderful to see um, this part of the country and all the cyber warriors out there and the, the incredible work they're doing. I'm going to ask you more about your uh, your keynote speak a little bit speech a little bit later in our show. Uh, but before we really dive into the the discussion of cyber and American national security interests, uh, Beth, I'd like to begin by asking you a bit about your career path. Uh, what was it that attracted you to serving the United United States in, in this intelligence field? Uh, yeah. You had a lengthy, very 
very successful career. Yeah. Well, part of it was accidental, but also part of it was that um, I started speech and debate in high school in Fargo, North Dakota, and um, that is, you know, it includes foreign policies, and it really got me engaged in thinking about foreign policy and my interest in that, and then I was a pastor's kid, and my mom, a teacher, and so that mission focus was just kind of baked in to my DNA, and that combined with, you know, just kind of the strong interest in serving national security, and it all kind of came together, but also very accidentally. Okay. And so college education, what did you major in? International relations and economics. Right. So you know, okay. I kind of walked right into it. Okay. And how'd you how'd you get your first job in the intelligence community? Well, I actually started at the Department of State, and then I stumbled into Intel, and I just found my calling really was about analyzing what was happening and and trying to provide insight, and and that's kind of where I I hit my sweet spot. Okay. Yeah. All right. So during your career in the Intel community, you served inside a number of the intelligence agencies' uh, partner organizations. There's partners all across the Intel, I think 18 now total, with the yeah. U.S. Space Force recently right. standing up their own right. intelligence uh, capability. Uh, but you finished out at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, the overarching uh, kind of policy control mechanism for the whole the whole uh, Intel community. Uh, this fall, uh, and you may be aware of this, we've been doing a series of shows on the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, we've co- so far covered DIA and NSA, and over the next few weeks we'll cover uh, NGA, the FBI, and, and with the National Security Branch, and uh, and the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, um, uh, Secretary Ron Moultrie, you may you yes. know him personally. Yes. Uh, you served at the ODNI level at the, at the, towards the end of your career. Um, he was just given uh, an award by the OSS Society last week, George Tennant. Um, wonderful team. They had that responsibility. In fact, I learned a lot about the community in that role. And I think everybody tried their best. But, you know, honestly, I, I do think that having just the singular goal, not of doing what another agency should be doing, but helping bring people together. Yeah. That, that, you know, you can't have that resident in an agency that has its own mission. Right, right. And then also at the ODNI level, there were some uh, some sort of, well, basically analytical centers, analytic centers yes, created. Yes, exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about Yes, so in the very beginning, of course, the National Counterterrorism Center was the real impetus for all of this, right? So Post-9-11 so time frame. That right? was yeah. the whole reason ODNI was set up. So that was kind of the crown jewel in the beginning of, of, of why. And then the National Counterproliferation Center and the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, right? And so these take three, we call them functional areas, but basically um, they're not countries. They're things that span countries. They look at threats that come at us from all different parts of the world and where so many different agencies have different responsibilities and also different authorities. In other words, permissions. So FBI and DHS, for example, are the only parts of our intelligence community that can look at domestic threats. Right. Right? And that was a that's a key thing, where you have CIA and others looking at foreign threats. You need to bring those together in these ideas of of counterintelligence in proliferation and especially in terrorism. Yeah, 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 yeah. That made that made really great sense to me. I, I was yeah. you know, active duty intel officer at the time <laughs> back then, so I, I remember those things. Uh, and and those 
if I if I understand it, those three areas, the uh, National Counterterrorism Center, for instance, uh, that doesn't preclude uh, DIA from having a focused uh, group uh, doing t terrorism analysis or CIA having terrorism no, analysis. Not at all. So how how, do, how does the National Counterterrorism Center work with the individual intelligence agencies and their own counterterrorism yeah. centers? CIA is a great example. Yes. Well, I mean, it's not as if there have not been friction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, you know, let's be honest, right? Um, NCTC is the only of the three that has its own analysis section. Okay. The other two focus much more on collection and bringing the enterprise together, figuring out what needs to be done, policy issues. Um, NCTC has its own analysis. Okay. Um, but it absolutely does not preclude DIA, CIA, INR in particular from having their own analytic shops. Yeah. And I think that the real key there is figuring out, you know, where, and FBI as well, um, you know, what are the unique capabilities and approaches that each agency takes. So it's not duplicative and it's not, you know, full combat sport. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that takes leadership and time to work those things out. And I think we're in a fairly good place now. And those those shops like the National Counterterrorism Center, they're they're not, you're not running counterterrorism operations from there. It's strictly no. intelligence support. Right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And a lot has to do with also working with the policy community and then working with foreign partners and figuring out how to share information. So you know, during 9/11, part of it was that FBI had information that is law enforcement-like information. Mm -hmm. And CIA had foreign-based information, yeah. and it wasn't being shared properly. And figuring out how you share law enforcement-based information with analysts who do foreign threats, right. that's a lot more complicated than it sounds, it because people's privacy is at you know, is at stake, and we have to really be careful about those things. Yeah. And, and I do want to ask about that, because you know, at the ODNI level, I know that uh, when it was first created, there was a lot of emphasis placed on protecting civil liberties and rights and things like that. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about what the organized yes. role is in that regard? Well, they have, um, they stood up an office for civil liberties. And one of the most important things that they've done over time is they've helped, and, and this is not doing it above or outside of the other intel agencies. It's collaborative. But they spearheaded the effort to create policies and standards that would be applied, working also with Congress to make sure that U.S. American civil liberties are protected. And it really was the first effort, I think, you know, um, not that uh, individual agencies didn't do this, but to take it and apply it across every agency yeah. and to have those standards and to have a place where agencies can come and say, we need to work this out together because we have conflicts in how we're approaching things. Yeah. And that's absolutely crucial. So I'm, we've had several wonderful officers in that role, um, and and it's been vital. I think vital for Americans. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I teach uh, uh, this course at Carleton College, uh, the U.S. Intelligence Community course. I've brought this up on the show many times, but uh, my students are very, very sharp. Right? They're yeah. they're focused heavily on this issue of uh, their own privacy rights and yes. uh, civil liberties and whatnot. So that's one of the things we cover cover pretty regularly in the course is a yeah. discussion on, on how well the intelligence community actually does protect uh, the rights of Americans and our privacy. And I think that Americans have a right to ask these questions. 
you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And they should be, and we need to keep pushing these things. Yeah. Uh, so briefly for our audience, uh, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired senior U.S. intelligence officer Beth Sander, and we're live at the Cybersecurity Summit in Bloomington, Minnesota. Uh, so, Beth, while, while serving as a senior leader in the U.S. intelligence community over the past decade, you, you saw lots of changes, obviously, especially as technology has really uh, changed. Uh, I mean, it changes constantly, but it's really the last decade. It's just incredible. How important did, uh, did cyber become to American national security interests during this past decade uh, while you were in these senior leaders? How much of a focus is cyber for the U.S. intelligence community as a whole today? Well, um, you know, I, uh, I'm regularly reviewing what I can um, from the intelligence community being on the outside now. Yeah. So I'm speaking always from my personal opinion, not from um, the government's viewpoint at this point. I don't have information, but there are some great resources out there, like the annual threat testimony that is put out. Anybody can search that and see what the intelligence community is thinking about all the threats in the world. And if you look at the 2022 one, um, it it gives a very clear rundown based on um, each country that is our key adversary or challenge, the four top ones, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and there's a cyber section in each one of those. Okay. And then there's a cyber section that's about cyber criminality because of the explosion of ransomware that... Americans have faced. So there is absolutely a very, very strong focus on this. Um, there was a lot of effort, um, not just in terms of collection and analysis, but we have organizations um, like CISA that works with the intelligence community, DHS, um, and we also have FBI, who is here today all week. Um, we've had FBI and CISA here as part of this conference. Okay. But, you know, in terms of um, the focus on this, you know, when I was in the National Intelligence Council um, 2013, I helped put together the annual threat testimony back then. Okay. And I recently went back and I looked at it because I was like, you know, how much has this changed over time? Yeah. Do you know what the first topic was of that dozens of pages? Cyber. Okay. Three pages of Cyber. And talked about threats to critical infrastructure, challenges to national security. It talked about the Internet of Things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, even back in 2013, and this is before solar winds and Colonial Pipeline, right. there was an incredible focus on it by the intelligence community. Yeah. So it's not new for us in the intel community, but I think it's getting much more broad coverage in the press these days, would you say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that Colonial Pipeline for Americans... Wake-up call. ...was the huge wake-up call. Yeah. Now, there are other countries, especially like Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine has had their energy infrastructure shut down, yeah. you know, for a decade now, um, off and on by, by Russia, by Russian attacks. But for this in America, I mean, that was the first time it came to U.S. critical infrastructure. Yeah. And I think that, unfortunately, we have more of that to come. Yeah. So you were here, you are here at the Cybersecurity Summit, uh, and you provided a, a keynote address yesterday to the entire audience here at the summit. Uh, this summit brings together cybersecurity professionals from kind of all levels of government, from industry, from academia, 
Uh, I mean, it's a big deal. <laughs> every year, this is the 12th annual Cybersecurity Summit, and it grows every single year. Uh, what was the gist of your speech uh, to the group yesterday? Yeah. Well, I first focused on what is, you know, what I do, which is really look across the world at geopolitical threats, and in this case, talked about how those threats would might manifest them even more in the cyberspace. And part of my job, I feel like now on CNN and just in some of the consulting that I do is helping people look ahead, see what's around the corner, and be better prepared. So the theme of this conference was eyes wide open. Yeah. And that, you know, so it was perfect for me because I was able to take, instead of, you know, a lot of people here are very, very deep on these issues, but I, I can take a 30,000 foot view and really talk about what's happening in Russia, China, Iran, and, and help people think about when and how cyber threats may manifest themselves from there. And then I, you know, I also um, talked about how to approach that really from my perspective as a former leader and, um, and focused on the human aspect of this, that you know, cyber threats aren't about IT departments anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it is whole of, whole of organization, whole of government, and really whole of society that needs to deal with these questions. And, um, you know, one of the great things here is that um, you do have the inclusion, as I said before, of, of governments, both state governments and federal governments, being fully integrated with the private sector. And thank God for the amazing talent in the private sector here. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's obviously uh, really important that you also... I mean, if we're going to think about this from a whole-of-government approach, we actually need to think about county and even municipal-level governments uh, oh. being integrated into this effort to protect the nation against cyber threats. A hundred percent. You know, not just municipalities, but, you know, you think about the institutions like colleges, yeah. part of the state system. Yeah. All of these institutions are coming under attack constantly. Right. People don't really think about it. They don't know about it because most of the time folks manage it. Yeah. But I have to say, one of the themes coming out of this for me is there is a sense of almost exhaustion right. among these cyber warriors. Um, it's not letting up. It's not letting up. Probably only going to get worse. And unfortunately, it will get worse. And so I really, um, I, I'm happy to see these kinds of events where people can come together, talk about best practices, get better and really um, collaborate. You know, Beth, I wanna, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Yeah. Uh, you're from North Dakota. I'm from Minnesota. Uh, the Upper Midwest is sort of known for having great education systems. Yes. Uh, do we need to do a better job in the public education system in the United States of educating kids on cyber from a younger age? A thousand percent. And how? Any thoughts on how we should? should I maybe do. do that? I do. Um, I I was lucky enough to listen in on a talk uh, earlier this week by the the CIO of North Dakota. Okay. My home state. So I went because. I'm from North Dakota, and I had heard that um, the this consortium of regional governments in this area were, were doing some amazing things. So I sat in, and um, what they are doing is taking this whole-of-society approach, okay. uh, protecting networks inside out, but also focusing on the education system from pre-K through PhD, as Sean Riley, um, the CIO, talks about. And... Um, I saw some videos of these kids 
and how engaged they are, third graders. I am blown away. Okay. And I have to say, what I, I will say, I don't think Sean will say this probably, but um, the reason for this is incredible leadership. You have a governor of North Dakota who's a technologist. Okay. Name another state. I don't know if there's another state like that. I don't think so. <laughs> he brings in an amazing yeah. cyber person like Sean from Minnesota. Yeah. And there is vision, there is commitment, and there is understanding and a lot of trust that they set up. And resources. They and resources. resources. And they got the legislature to put things together. And I, um, So I, I am just... Um, I am really impressed, and I think it's it's a model. And, um, yeah, so there is hope. So the future cybersecurity leaders and, and leaders in the U.S. intelligence community in the cyber uh, sphere are going to all be coming from North Dakota? Is that what I'm hearing? It's too small. <laughs> it's too small to do that. But um, I think we can educate uh, Americans to be more prepared. Yeah. And it starts with our kids, probably. Okay. So how, how much, I mean, resource-wise across the U.S. intelligence community, how much of the resources, I mean, just as a guess, uh, are, are committed towards focusing on the cybersecurity issue? Well, or if, cyber I, if I knew, I probably couldn't tell you because I have to kill you. <laughs> but I don't know, actually, so um, I'm going to take a pass on yeah, that. Yeah, that's okay. But I would say that, you know, there is a lot of um, collaboration in this space. Um, when I was there... I couldn't believe um, the talent that we have. And, you know, they need more. And yeah. it's hard for the government to compete with private sector. And so I would say that, you know, everyone out there, maybe there's some college students out there who are interested, think about service. You don't have to do it for your entire life. Yeah. Come, learn, go back out, make money, whatever. Yeah. But um, there's a place where it, it's a really special place, too, where you can make a difference. Okay. So I'm going to pivot to a different different question here for you. Your last position before you retired as the Deputy Director of National Intelligence uh, for Mission Integration. I mean, that's a huge responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely huge. Uh, can you talk a little bit about specifically what happened in your uh, your directorate, I guess, uh, at ODNI for Mission Integration? And then I know that you were also the President's uh, Daily Briefer, the Intel Briefer, yeah. uh, for two presidents. Is that right? Or um, no, just for Trump. Just for President just Trump. For President could, Trump. Could you talk a mm -hmm. little bit about the process for how that uh, the President's Daily Brief is built and delivered to the President? Just the mechanics yes, of it? Yes, yes. Um, I'd love to. Um, you know, the PDB, people talk about the PDB, the President's Daily Brief, as being the book. Yeah. Right? It's the place, it's like the President's classified newspaper. But it's so much more than that. Yeah. It is about briefers again from every corner of the intelligence community coming together and they they start arriving and they're based at CIA headquarters they start arriving between midnight and 2 a.m. Yeah. six days a week um, and they start gathering their thoughts it's, wor it's worse than being a baker at a baker oh, right? <laughs> I, 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 um, I have to tell you I was blessed with President Trump being a late having a late briefing for him I it was always 11 a.m. or later okay. and I could not have done you know some of these guys would leave at around 6 a.m. so so they're what they're doing is they're consuming the written work of the PDB but they're also gathering and curating information from all corners of the intelligence community that 
that is produced by the intelligence community and open source. And then they have pre-briefers, in other words, the analysts who wrote pieces, come through and talk to them to get them ready for their briefing. And then, you know, around 6 a.m., they start fanning out across Washington, D.C., and going and briefing the top national security policymakers and military officers of our country. Okay. And, it, and so in that process, they're level setting the, the knowledge of the intelligence community and the insight and the assessments of the intelligence community. They're level setting that across the entire national security enterprise by talking to those individual leaders, plus they're curating information based on each of those individuals' needs, what their agenda is who they're going to talk to that day, what trip they're going to go on, what meetings they're attending. And so it is just this powerful um, tool that really is based on relationships. Yeah. And and I think our lives really get down to relationships, right? It is. It is. No question about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. So it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And, I, and um, that job, being head of the PDB, and then... National. When I was DNI for mission integration, the PDB reported to me. I just, I think, um, just a wonderful thing um, that shows the best of the intelligence community and the connection of the intelligence community to support the policymaking process. Could you comment just briefly on the importance of uh, the fact that the intelligence community gives our best assessment to policymakers, but we're really not involved in the policy process, right? There there has to be a firewall there, right? There does. There does. I mean, you know, so this is what really sets the U.S. intelligence community apart from most others in the world, is that it's not politicized. Yeah. Right? And, and, And people talk about politicization, and they worry about it, and we wring our hands over it, and we we challenge each other about it. Um, to make sure that we are keeping that line. And sometimes it's easier than others. But, you know, when the briefer goes in there, um, they are providing assessment that is, you know, I like to say we call it like we see it. Um, and so we provide that. But if the question is, what should I do about that? Then, you know, it's also a gift. I love not having to answer that question, but I have to say, being a policymaker is super hard, right? And it was great sometimes to say, well, like, uh, over to you, (laughs) you know, can't do that. Um, But at the same time, you know, some criticisms of the intelligence community have been that, well, you know, it's easy criticizing. It's easy saying, oh, it's all going to be doom and gloom. And so so um, I remember Michael Morrell, one of the one of the great leaders of the intelligence community, uh, CIA, saying, like, we have to be helpful. Yeah. You know, we have to figure out a way of thinking about opportunities and thinking about what might happen. Yeah. And so in the last, uh, I would say, 15 years, there's been more of an emphasis on not just being the skunk at the garden party. Right. Right? right. But actually trying to be helpful, but still not walking across that line. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenge because it's not like all of us in the intelligence community don't have our own opinions and ideas, right? <laughs> yes, but it is really important part of training to put those aside. Yeah. And every time I went in to brief President Trump, um, it, it was not up to me to judge whether I agreed with his policies or not. Right. That is up to American voters yeah. to say, I agree or I don't agree. And there will be another election, and 
they can vote. That's right. Um, my job was to convey the information from the intelligence community in the best way that I could. Yeah. And and to make sure that he could hear me um, when I was trying to convey that. Yeah. And to have a relationship with him, just like all the briefers had before me and all the briefers with um, the other national security leaders, so you can have those conversations yeah. and have those tough conversations. Yeah. Uh, Beth, we have to take a, just a brief uh, uh, commercial break uh, for our sponsor. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th through the 26th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Beth Sander, you spent uh, 35 years as a professional intelligence officer in the U.S. intelligence community. You've briefed presidents on strategic intelligence issues. Uh, you're also an expert on the role of cyber intelligence security and, and national security threats. Uh, so we're very lucky to have you on the show today. As you look around the world, which nations most concern you regarding this nexus of cyber capabilities and potential threats to American national security interests? Yes, well, um, I, I definitely, um, Russia and China are absolutely the alligators closest to the boat. Okay. And um, they have different, they have different threats, um, they have different goals, um, but they are both formidable. Uh, I was at a, a conference recently where the director of CISA, um, the Cyber Intelligence Security Agency, um, termed it, Russia is the hurricane and China is climate change. Ah, okay. And by climate change, I would add to that, you know, that um, we're having extreme weather events constantly and they're getting worse. Right. Um, and so I think that's the, the state that we're in right now. And so um, as I talked about with this group yesterday, Russia is, um, the Russia-Ukraine war is really accelerating a lot of the trends that we saw underway and creating some new ones. And I think that the biggest, you know, we haven't seen here in the United States, we've seen some of these hacktivist groups go after us like KillNet. Yeah. And uh, one of the presenters uh, here earlier their corporation has gone through and looked at all of those threats and said, you know, Kilmet, there's a lot more bark than bite there. Okay. So we haven't seen attacks on our critical infrastructure, but I am extremely concerned right now. I, I would say that, you know, a month ago I would not have said this, but where we are right now in this war with Russia, I am extremely concerned about potential um, cyber attacks as well as accompanied by the threat of Russia's use of a nuclear device or some kind of radiological event there. And the reason I say that is because, you know, Ukraine is making so much progress. They're doing exactly what we would hope. And with that progress, we are moving into the greatest period of threat and risk, yeah. which is so ironic um, and scary. 
because Putin cannot win on the battlefield. Right. He cannot. No. But he also believes he cannot lose. And so we are at a point in time that if he risks losing that territory that he seized in 2014, or he risks the collapse of his army in the south, and I, I really am watching that, um, I worry that he will do something dramatic, um, either to force Ukraine and us to the negotiating table, or frankly, if that won't work, he will say, okay, I can't win, but neither can you. So and he'll burn earth. the house yeah. down. Yeah, scorched earth. Paul. Exactly. And with already in the past two weeks, seeing Ukraine losing, having damaged 40% yeah. of their energy infrastructure, we're seeing this policy already playing out. He has to go to asymmetrical threats. And that means our critical infrastructure could be in the crosshairs as well. And we know that they have capabilities to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So shields up America. So on, on that point, because I do want to get to some of the other nation, national threats, but uh, yeah. this, this challenge with, with the, a Russia-U.S. or you know, Russia-NATO cyber yeah. engagement. I've asked this question before. I actually, a previous uh, chief of naval operations, I asked this question to as, as a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. At, at, at what point does cyber become an act of war? Uh, right. You know, we in the intelligence community, I think we've been struggling with that for a long yes. time. What What is an act of war in the cyber arena? Well, one of the other things that I like to talk about as an example of this is there is a cyber war going on in the world right now. Not just the general war, but an actual cyber war. And yeah. it's happening between Israel and Iran. Right. It's been happening for two years. Um, the head of Israel's cyber security or cyber directorate said 19, uh, 2020 marked a period where there was a marked shift in cyber warfare okay. because of what happened between them. And the real division there was that instead of these kind of tit-for-tat aimed at just military things, critical infrastructure and human beings, civilians, became targets. Okay. And that is happening between Israel and Iran at a pace that is shocking. And we don't really know about it. Yeah. But last year... Um, there was this, you know, um, there was a series of attacks. It started in 2020 with Iran attacking the water and sewer system. That's out there and been discussed quite a bit. Um, Israel was able to squash that attack, but, but it, it could have poisoned millions of people. But now we have targets like going after dating websites. And we might laugh about that, right? It sounds funny. Yeah. Um, or medical records. Yeah. But last year, 1.3 Israelis, 16% of their population, and then this year, another 300,000 Israelis had personal information put out on, on different social media sites, hack and leak, their HIV status, their yeah. sexual orientation, explicit yeah. images, what kind of medical procedures they're having. Yeah. 
what their relationships are. This is not something that Americans are really prepared for. No, no. So the other striking thing, John, is what you've said. No one in the world has said that cyber war. Right. No one has said you all should not be doing that. There should be this penalty or that penalty. And so I, I feel like it's a microcosm. This war going on is a microcosm of what we're not doing and what we're going to see potentially much more of. And we have to figure this out. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's at a time when our international institutions are not working. Right. Because we have perpetrators of these kinds of acts. Yes, I'm looking at you, Russia and China, <laughs> yeah. who are on, you know, right. decision-making bodies in the in the UN, right. and it's making it very, very hard. Yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, Russia, as you mentioned, it's it's the hurricane as opposed to yeah. China being climate change, which yes. is this really big, yes. major strategic challenge that we face. Yes. Uh, let's transition over and talk a little bit about China. What's yes. the, what is the threat from China? Um, I went back and I wanted to read a little passage, if I can find it here in my papers. I wanted to read a little passage from the threat assessment about China because it really um, struck me. I'm going to have to page through here um, as as something I wanted our listeners to see. And of course, I'm not finding it here. But basically, you know, China poses the most formidable threat to us across the cyber realm. They have capabilities that are really just unmatched. Yeah. And they throw so many people at it. So when I look ahead and I look at what's happening now, you know, speaking of warfare, we're in an economic war with China. No question about it. <laughs> And this began under the Trump administration, but the Biden administration has doubled down. Yeah. And just two weeks ago, with the executive order issued by President Biden on semiconductors, I don't know if your listeners were paying attention to this, but it is a, an earthquake. Right. It basically is an effort in my, I will say this, the administration will not say this, but I will say this when I read this and I read what people are saying about it. It is an effort to strangle China's ability to develop advanced artificial intelligence across the whole range of things because what they are doing in this technological space threatens us from a military perspective and also from a perspective of our economic viability, our competitiveness, and ultimately even our freedoms because of the kind of surveillance technology that they are proliferating around the world. Right. And so I, I, I really want Americans to understand that um, this is an adversary, um, yes, uh, who wants to be in charge of um, wants to be dominant in these technological spaces um, because they want to control um, the economic space, but their means of doing this encroach on our civil liberties 
and they are going right into our defense industrial complex, yeah. into all of our technology organizations, and they are trying to steal our intellectual property, yeah. our identities. And we have to do more. And I feel like the Biden administration executive order is the most significant thing that we have seen. And what is China going to do if they can't get semiconductors, advanced semiconductors, if they can't get the equipment to make semiconductors, if their domestic industry that the party Congress just said, China technology, you have to be self-sufficient, they don't have the means to do that without U.S. technology. Yeah. And this prevents any of that, no matter where it's produced in the world, if it contains U.S. technology, and almost all of it does, it cannot be exported to China. As I understand it, it's, I, I think it's the top three blueprint makers of this chip te technology that allow us to move into these really high-end processing capabilities are all U.S.-based, right? All U.S.-based. And the software behind it. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, we may not be doing well in manufacturing chips, advanced chips here. Um, that, that's but ta that's Taiwan. <laughs> that's Taiwan. Um, hopefully, you know, some of that will be nearshored. Yeah. But I think friend-shoring, in other words, that our allies are producing these things is also very important. But yeah. securing these supply chains, but the intellectual property. Yeah. It comes from the United States. So so that technology is in um, all of the Taiwan chips. It's in the Dutch chips. It's in the South Korean chips. It's in the Japanese chips. And what this, what this order says, and if it is enforced as written, it means that those countries can't sell to, to China this technology or the equipment to make it make their own so what does that mean that means they're going to have to try to steal it right and that's what i think we really are going to have to watch um nsa's um cybersecurity chief rob joyce just was talking about this a couple weeks ago and saying how brazen the chinese actors have become so we're already at a heightened state where we're seeing these intrusions becoming, you know, more advanced, more directed, and and as Rob Joyce said, NSA said, more brazen. It's going to be more than yeah. that, yeah. right? So so it, it is it is frightening. You you, you paint a uh, a terrifying picture, Beth. <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> For our audience, uh, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired senior U.S. intelligence officer Beth Sander, and we're live at the Cybersecurity Summit here in Bloomington, Minnesota. Uh, so, Beth, we have about 15 minutes left in our show this morning. This time goes by so fast. It's yes. just incredible every Wednesday. Uh, it's been a fantastic discussion so far. Uh, I'd like to ask you to talk a bit more about the trends that you see in the cyber arena, especially as they impact American national security interests. You just mentioned the term artificial intelligence, yeah. uh, and that, that that's a huge issue for, for the U.S. and China in this competition over AI. Uh, that's really, we should we should highlight, that's that's really machine learning, advanced machine learning, because true stage. artificial intelligence is a machine or a computer thinking or exactly the way yeah. a human brain would right. and behaving that way. Right. So there's a moral and ethical component that's built in in, in the way we're, we're raised culturally. 
But a, real, real AI is, mm -hmm. we're not there yet. <laughs> not quite, not quite. But machine learning is advancing very, very rapidly, uh, and it's uh, supported by the acquisition of big data. Uh, one of the things that you just mentioned, sort of tangentially, is the is the fact that China has been stealing massive quantities of data data sets to feed into their machine learning exactly. system to expand their their advances in the artificial intelligence world. Uh, what do you see coming? Uh, what kind of trends do you see coming? What what most concerns you in this area of machine learning and how it's going to impact American national security interests? Well, I think with all of these technologies, they're a double-edged sword, right? That there are parts of these technologies that help the good guys, and there are parts of these technologies, the way they're applied, that helps the bad guys. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think we are at a stage where it is a lot easier to create havoc than to defend against it. Yeah. Um, and um, because this is the private sector that really has to build this up, companies have to make decisions about what the risk is, and they have to make profit-based decisions for their shareholders on how much they can, how much they invest, mm -hmm. um, and how do they spread this risk across other risk factors. Um, so we are seeing the application of AI-based defense, um, but not to the degree yet um, as probably is needed. Okay. And, um, you know, so I, let me describe a little bit about, um, you know, how this works. Um, so when you, when you take machine learning and AI, you can see patterns, right? It, it's a way of sorting data. It's a way of automating processes and um, having some things just being automatic, right? Mm -hmm. And so from a defender's um, standpoint, you can have... Um, a, when an attack comes in, there's a lot of cacophony. There's a lot of noise. Right. And what AI can help the human do is sort through all that noise and really help the human focus on what the real attack vectors are and get rid of all that other stuff. Yeah. And it can also automate or create semi-automated reactions to actually defend against that. I, all of us are a little bit familiar with this with our credit cards, right? So, you know, when a credit card uses algorithms to figure out what your pattern of spending is, and all of a sudden um, you've bought um, a, a um, $50 worth of beer at a convenience store in Texas, and you're based in Washington, D.C., the algorithm says, uh-uh, that might not be you. Yeah. And they shut that card down, and they call you or text you. It's the same with this, but kind of on steroids, right? Yeah. So we all have AI helping us and help defend against, in this case, that that's cyber criminality at its most basic sense. Unfortunately, the bad guys can use this AI machine learning automation themselves. And they can do that in a couple of ways, um, especially if you combine, as you said, kind of the open open source and share and, and personal information. They can create phishing emails, and they can automate that, and they can make it look really real. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that we worry about is disinformation. Right. 
you know, we've been talking about deep fakes. In other words, we can take a person, and there there are programs out there where you and I can can actually go online and and create um, someone speaking and saying things that we didn't say that sound just like us or look like us. Now we didn't see that very much in the twenty. We didn't see any of that in the twenty twenty campaign, right? Yeah. I I don't think we're really. Maybe maybe this will happen in the future. Social media companies saw this in the days after, um, saw this kind of AI-generated um, personas on social media days after the Ukraine war, um, promoting Ukrainian, anti-Ukrainian messages. But they caught that, and they shut it down. And they're developing, they have to develop mechanisms to recognize these things more and more. But I think we're going to, you know, this is just something that Americans need to be really paying attention to. Don't click on on (laughs) attachments. Don't click on attachments. Delete. Yeah. yeah. Phone a friend. Right. Text somebody. Did you send that to me? (laughs) Yeah. Be careful. So you mentioned it, uh, the speed with which computers and, and these you know, artificial intelligence algorithms can operate is it's really beyond anything human beings can manage directly. We Absolutely. really are gonna have to rely on our own systems to defend our systems. Yes, and I think we have to become more comfortable with the idea that systems can be automated to help us. We just need to have the human in the loop always setting the rules checking the rules, making sure it's operating the way it's intended. But as Americans, as, as humans, we are going to have to set up these structures of governance yeah. of these systems, but we are going to have to rely on them more if we're going to defend ourselves. It, it sort of strikes me, <clears throat> as I'm sitting here thinking about all of the implications of what you're talking about, we could probably do an entire hour just on this and barely scratch the surface. Absolutely. Yeah. And maybe with smarter people than me. Just maybe. <laughs> me too. Me too. Uh, so you provide a, a really concerning picture of the advances of what artificial intelligence will spur with regard to cyber operations, what we're going to see in the future. Yeah. Moore's law and all, every 18 months yeah, we, we double the amount the of there. Yeah, we're just getting there. So we're looking at both defensive and offensive uh, operations, and then the challenges we face in the coming decades and beyond. It's it's really kind of a, a concerning thing. You you uh, are at the University of Maryland. Uh, you're also fellowship at uh, the Balfour Center. Yeah. What trends are you seeing uh, that create opportunities opportunities yeah. uh, for the United States when it comes to cyber and national security? Uh, what, what partnerships does the United States have with our allies and friends or, or connections in the academic world, maybe even in the, you know, the private sector, uh, that you think there might be, just, just maybe, be ways in which we can get control of the genie we've released from the bottle with yeah. regards to cyber? Well, I'm, I'm going to do an unpaid advertisement here for <laughs> University of Maryland and the Applied uh, Research Lab for Intelligence and Security, which is a, um, a university, um, basically a, it's an applied lab. It's, a, it's kind of um, a way for the U.S. government to partner with academia to clear people and have, um, have these organizations, these applied labs, um, really focus on problems um, and to bring in academia 
as part of the solution. And in the case of Arliss, you know, this is really the interface between human and technology is the focus of this. Yeah. And we're sponsored by DOD's um, Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Okay. Um, Rob, so you'll so, you'll, so you'll we'll, talk when we'll you talk to Secretary Ron Moultrie Moultrie in uh, yeah. a couple of weeks. So yeah. yes, exactly. But you know, one of the great things here, as I mentioned, is that we have FBI and CISA here at this conference, and um, two of the co-sponsors of this conference were speaking yesterday, and they said, twelve years ago, um, the participants of this conference were upset because they didn't realize there was a government person in the room and they said we don't want to talk about our problems and our concerns in front of the you know the government you know we don't want to do that and now we here are here 12 years later and state and and federal government is integrated into this conversation and um, our cyber leaders in Washington are talking about taking the mindset from this private sector partnership Jenny Stilley likes to say, you know, like that's a past trend. What we're really talking about is collaboration. And what does that take? That takes sharing. And um, I think this administration has taken that idea of being much more open with intelligence that we need to share and talk about intelligence and figure out ways of making sure that people outside of government who need to know because absolutely in spades the private sector needs to know and vice versa the government can learn and is learning from private sector and academia and so that collaboration has to be set on a totally different um, paradigm of of equals. Yeah, is that why we created sort of the the, the U.S. cybers are Chris Inglis is in this role. Yes, and a wonderful a wonderful first person to be in that position who really gets this. So I think we're really blessed with a whole range of leaders. Um, NSA's director, Paul Nakasone, another fantastic leader in this space. Yeah. And, uh, and a Minnesotan. And a Minnesotan, which <laughs> is one of the reasons why I mentioned it. <laughs> so we, we only have uh, about four minutes left. Uh, Beth Sander, uh, what else should our listeners know about this nexus of cyber and American national security? Uh, maybe something that I didn't ask you today that I probably should have asked you. Uh, something, you know, that you think is really important that the listeners really need to know about. Um, well... I talked a little bit about um, the CIO from North Dakota and the presentation um, that he gave uh, and the approach that they have with this whole of society approach. And I want people to know that they need to take responsibility themselves for cybersecurity. We all need to do better because it's not just about each individual. Each individual here is part of a system. Yeah. And, you know, how you behave on social media, what you put out there is of absolute interest to adversaries. We need to think about that. Um, I think about our upcoming election. People need to ask elected officials to be better on technology. Maybe we need to elect more people, like the governor of North Dakota, who is a technologist. Yeah. And think a little bit less about what party people are in and a little bit more about, is this a person who has a vision about the future of America and 
thinking about ways of making sure our economic competitiveness and our science and technology advantages continue to grow. Because that's our future and that's our children's future. Yeah. And, and the grandchildren, too. And the grandchildren, too. Unfortunately, we've, uh, we've come to the end of today's edition of National Security This Week. Uh, Beth Sander, currently a fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs and a professor in practice at the University of Maryland's Applied Research Lab for Intelligence and Security. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, I was delighted to be here, delighted to be home, and um, thank you so much for inviting me. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. If you enjoy the show, make sure you tune in to Public Policy This Week on Friday mornings at 10 a.m. Our guest on this coming show on Friday morning will, in fact, be Sean Riley, the CIO for North Dakota, who uh, Beth Sander just mentioned during our show today. Uh, for our show, National Security This Week, next Wednesday morning, we'll actually have uh, special agent, retired Special Agent Be- uh, Jill Sanborn, who is the former head of the FBI's National Security Branch, and she'll come on uh, the show to talk about uh, the FBI's role in the intelligence community. Uh, my personal thanks to the team at the Cybersecurity Summit for hosting us today. You can learn more about the Cybersecurity Summit at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 27th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington. <laughs>